Labour has never done well in a UK election without doing really well in Scotland. We need deposit ATMs and we need withdrawal ATMs and we need a law that means that businesses have to accept cash. UK workers have had the most bargaining power essentially since the 1970s because the jobs market is so tight. Can Britain actually afford to maintain a global military presence? You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Welcome to the programme. In a few minutes, we'll bring you our interview with the Shadow Business and Trade Secretary, Jonathan Reynolds. A fascinating conversation. We cover a whole load of topics, including the challenges facing local authorities and funding after what's happened to Birmingham City Council this week. We'll also dig into some of Labour's vision for the City of London and future relations with the European Union when it comes to trade as well. That's because Jonathan Reynolds is one of those people who's just picked up a bit of a new job in the recent reshuffles. Yeah, reshuffles from two top teams, both... Party leaders shuffling their top teams. Uh, Peter Armin's question today, it is seven weeks since the last PMQs. We've had seven weeks. Only yesterday. (laughs) Seven weeks of blistering heat. Well, maybe not. But the politics didn't really cool down like it does sometimes. We had those uh, reshuffles, that mini reshuffle really from the Prime Minister, Ben Wallace, uh, leaving defence with Grant Shapps taking his fifth cabinet job in just over a year. Uh, More extensive changes from Keir Starmer, his revamp. Uh, seeing Liz Kendall and Hilary Benn, two big names uh, coming back into the shadow cabinet and a role, big role for Darren Jones, uh, a new face in the top team. He comes in as number two to Rachel Reeves uh, and a new role for Deputy Leader Angela Rayner, uh, shadowing Michael Gove. I think Keir Starmer keen to not to avoid, keen to avoid the uh, rather chaotic uh, reshuffle he had uh, involving Angela Rayner last time. Now we're back with our Prime Minister's Questions uh, coverage, but there's only another two to go before the recess for party conferences. The House will then return on the 16th of October after Labour's conference, just a few weeks ahead of the King's speech in early November. So these leaders have got a lot to squeeze in in their exchanges to catch up on the summer and also realise they haven't got that many free kicks to go between now and when they take a pause next. Yes, and then we're back uh, end of October and that King's speech coming up. Gosh, we're already looking towards uh, autumn. And of course, the uh, autumn statement from the Chancellor at the end of November. That'll be interesting. Uh, Another anniversary today, Stephen. It is exactly a year since Liz Truss became Prime Minister. Ah, yes, of course. Uh, Labour was out there on social media marking the occasion by saying that letters had cost 20% more now than it did a year <laughs> ago, um, which I thought was a very timely uh, piece of uh, social media management this morning. Uh, thinking about what we're going to be discussing, though, during Prime Minister's questions, we'll get straight to it and listen to Keir Starmer, the Labour leader. Prime Minister, and congratulating the Lionesses and his comments about Sergeant Savile. I think we all speak for the whole House when we speak on that subject. I'd also like to extend the warmest welcome to our new Labour member for Selby and Ainsty. He's already made history for the Labour Party by overturning the largest Tory majority ever in a by-election. And I'd also welcome the honourable members for Uxbridge and South Ryslip, Somerton and Frome. Mr Speaker, The roof of Singlewell Primary School in Gravesend collapsed in May 2018. Thankfully, it happened at the weekend and no children were injured. The concrete ceiling was deemed dangerous and liable to collapse, and everyone knew the problem existed in other schools. Yet the Prime Minister decided to halve the budget for school maintenance just a couple of years later. Does he agree with his Education Secretary that he should be thanked for doing a good job. (laughs) Mr Speaker, I know how concerned parents, 
children and teachers are. And I want to start by assuring them that the government is doing everything it can to fix this quickly and minimise the disruption to children's education. We make no apology for acting decisively in the face of new information. And let me provide the House with an update on where we are. Of the 22,000 schools in England, the vast, vast majority won't be affected. In fact, in two-thirds of inspections of suspected schools, RAC is not actually present. And to tackle the 1% of schools that have been affected so far, the 1%, we are assigning each of those schools a dedicated caseworker and providing extra funding to fix the problem. In the majority of cases, children will attend school as normal, and the mitigations take typically just days or weeks to complete. We will do everything we can to help parents, support teachers, and get children back to normal school life as quickly as possible. Well, Mr. Speaker, Wood Green Academy in Sandwell was on Labour's building list in 2010. They scrapped it, and now children there are in a crumbling school. The head of the National Audit Office accuses him of taking a sticking plaster approach. The NAO report says he cut £869 million. The person who ran the Department for Education says he is personally responsible. On Monday, he leapt to his own defence, saying it is utterly wrong to blame him. So why does literally everyone else say it's his fault? Mr Speaker, Mr Speaker, the professional advice from the technical experts on RAG has evolved over time and indeed it is something that successive governments have dealt with dating back to 1994, Mr Speaker. Now, as new advice has come forward, the government has rightly, decisively and swiftly acted in the face of that advice. But he, he talked about school budgets and talked about what I had done. But let me just walk him through the facts of actually what that spending review did, because he brought it up. Well, no, he's brought it up, so presumably he would like to hear the facts. Funding for school maintenance and rebuilding will average £2.6 billion a year over this Parliament as a result of that spending review, which represents a 20% increase on the years before. Indeed, indeed, Mr Speaker, far from cutting budgets, as he alleges, the amount spent last year was the highest in a decade. That spending review, that spending review maintained, Mr Speaker, Mr. Speaker, that spending review maintained the school rebuilding programme, delivering 500 schools over a decade, a pace completely consistent with what had happened previously. And, Mr. Speaker, it is worth pointing out that during the parliamentary debates on that spending review, the Labour Party and him did not raise the issue of RAC one single time. So, before he jumps on the next political bandwagon, he should get his facts straight. Mr Speaker, Carmel College in Darlington was on the Labour's building list in 2010. They scrapped it, and now children there are in a crumbling school. And on the one hand, we have him saying it's nothing to do with him. On the other side, we have the facts. And there's a simple way to clear this up. Why doesn't he commit to publish the requests from the Department of Education for the school rebuilding programme and what risks he was warned of before he turned them down? 
Mr. Speaker, the honourable gentleman has now brought up twice the Labour the Labour School Rebuildings Programme. He's now brought it up twice. So let's just look at that and look at the facts surrounding that, because we do know the truth about that programme, Mr. Speaker, because the NAO, as he's called on, actually reviewed that programme later on. What did they define? They found that Labour School Rebuilding Programme actually excluded 80% of schools. Next, what did they find? What did they find? That it was a third more expensive than it needed to be, needlessly wasting resources that have gone to schools. And Mr. Speaker, and Mr. Speaker, this is the worst bit. The worst bit is that that programme, because now he's talking about the physical condition of schools, that programme only allocated funds solely on the basis of ideology, with no regard whatsoever to the physical condition of schools, Mr Speaker. That's why the Independent James Review described that programme as time-consuming and expensive, just like the Labour Party. We don't want to start off with somebody leaving so early. Because that's what's going to happen, Keir Starmer. Well, Mr. Speaker, they want more, so let me continue. Ferryhill School in County Durham was on Labour's building list in 2010. They scrapped it, and now children there are in a crumbling school. The truth is, this crisis is the inevitable result of 13 years of cutting corners, botched jobs, sticking plaster politics. It's the sort of thing you expect from cowboy builders saying that everyone else is wrong, everyone else is to blame, protesting they've done an effing good job, even as the ceiling falls in. The difference, Mr Speaker, is that in this case, the cowboys are running the country. Isn't he ashamed that after 13 years of Tory government, children are cowering under steel supports, stopping their classroom roof, falling in? Just seriously, I will calm down. First session, I understand people are excited to be back at school. Will we expect better behaviour, Prime Minister? Well, Mr Speaker, this is exactly the kind of political opportunism that we've come exactly the kind of opportunism that we've come to expect from Captain Hindsight over here. Before, before today. Before today, he's never once raised this issue with me across this dispatch box. It wasn't even worthy of a single... It's the same for this side as well. Can I just say, we're going to have a calmer question times going forward. I want to hear the question, I want to hear the answer, just like your constituents, Prime Minister. Mr Speaker, before today, he never once raised this issue with me in Parliament. It wasn't even worthy of a single mention in his so-called landmark speech on education this summer. And if we'd listened to him, our kids would have been off school and locked down for longer. It's as simple as that. He talks about 13 years. Well, let's see what happened. When we, in, when we came into office, two-thirds of school were good and outstanding. Now it's 90 per cent, Mr Speaker. We introduced the pupil premium to get more funding to the most disadvantaged pupils, Mr Speaker. Today, they are 75% more likely to go to university. And as a result of our reforms, we now have the best readers in the Western world, Mr Speaker. That's what 13 years of education reform gets you, all of which opposed by the party opposite. 
but it claims to be a man of detail. There are 100 parliamentary questions from this side on this issue and an Opposition Day motion. But, Mr Speaker, let us continue. Holy Family Catholic School in Bradford was on the Labour building list in 2010. They scrapped it, and now children there too are in a crumbling school. Um, Mr Holden, I think I've heard enough. No, then, this is the last time you make your mind up. You either go no or you're quiet for the rest of us. And, Mr Speaker, if you can believe it, in April this year, the Education Secretary signed a contract for refurbishment of her offices. It's got a personal stamp of approval on it. It cost, I can't quite believe this, £34 million. Can he explain to parents whose children aren't at school this week why he thinks a blank cheque for he Tory minister's office is better use of taxpayers' money than stopping schools collapsing. Well, Mr Speaker, what I'd say to parents is, in the receipt of new information, we have acted decisively to ensure the safety of children and minimise disruption to education, as we have laid out and communicated extensively. That is the right thing to do. And I would also gently point out to him, Mr Speaker, whilst the Department for Education started this process 18 months ago in spring of last year, as far as I can tell, in Labour-run Wales, they still don't know which schools are affected. Mr. Speaker. But again, he brought up this issue of funding, Mr. Speaker. And again, let's look back to what happened in that spending review. Because in that spending review, I increased the Department for Education's capital budget by 25% to a record £7 billion, Mr. Speaker. It tripled the amount that we spend on children with special education needs and disabilities. It improved the condition of the overlooked FE estate and it set the course for per pupil funding to be the highest ever. But it also, Mr. Speaker, crucially, invested £5 billion to help our pupils recover the lost learning from COVID. £5 billion, Mr. Speaker. And he might remember that because he, we wanted pupils learning, he wanted longer lockdowns. I, don't, I think he just doesn't get how this it's all fine out there is so at odds with the lived experience of millions of working people across this country. And Mr Speaker, let's go on. This is a long list. At least, at least six schools in Essex were on Labour's building list in 2010. They scrapped them, and now children there are in crumbling schools. What he won't admit is the reason he cut these budgets, ignored the warnings, is quite simple. Just like he thought his tax rises were for other families to pay, he thinks his school cuts are for other families to endure. Doesn't it tell you everything you need to know? That he's happy to spend millions of taxpayers' money sprucing up Tory offices, billions to ensure there's no VAT on Tory school fees, but he won't lift a finger when it comes to protecting other people's schools, other people's safety, other people's children. Mr Speaker, I, I know he comes here with these prepared scripts, but he hasn't listened to a single fact, a single fact of six questions about the record amounts of funding going into schools, about the incredible reforms to education impacting the most disadvantaged children in our society, a record that we are rightly proud of. And yes, 
Of course he can. Of course we can name the schools. That's because we are reacting to information and publishing that information, Mr. Speaker. So we know where the issues are. Something that we're still waiting for by the Welsh government in Wales. But, Mr. Speaker. Mr Speaker, of course he wants to try and score political points of something that we are dealing with in the right and responsible way. But I do note that he has not mentioned a single other thing that has happened since we last met across these dispatch boxes, Mr Speaker. He talked about hard-working families across Britain, but what's happened? Energy bills, down, Mr Speaker. What's happened to inflation? Down, Mr. Speaker. What's happened to small boat crossings? Down, Mr. Speaker. And when it comes, Mr. Speaker, and when it comes to economic growth, what's happened? It's gone up, Mr. Speaker. He tried, he tried time and time again to talk down the British economy, but people weren't listening, thankfully. His entire economic narrative has been demolished, and the Conservatives are getting on delivering for Britain. Right, well, there we had it. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and uh, Labour leader Keir Starmer in the first PMQ since the summer recess, dominated, of course, by the crumbling concrete issue in schools. Keir Starmer citing as many examples, I think, as he could find of schools that had been on Labour's building list that then were not taken off them by the Conservatives. Rishi Sunak putting forward uh, his version of how they feel the rebuildings programme has gone. Um, that is your first Prime Minister's questions of this new parliamentary session. Yeah, Rishi Sunak saying he's doing everything he can to fix this quickly and to minimise disruption, adding that ministers have acted decisively in the face of new information. Yes, an entire session on the problem of uh, concrete in schools. I want to turn next to that interview we promised you. The Shadow Business and Trade Secretary Jonathan Reynolds has been speaking to Carolyn Hepker and myself. We started by asking him how Labour planned to tackle the funding challenges facing local authorities. Well, the situation facing local authorities up and down the country is unfortunately similar to many public services in the UK right now, which is to say that the decisions of the last 13 years have come home to roost. And there are consequences of those. I mean, there is a, a specific issue people will be probably aware of with Birmingham around an equal pay claim that has come in. But the, the bottom line is that the, the funding for local authorities and the burden of that being put onto local taxation and council tax, which can never support the kind of statutory responsibilities councils have, particularly in the poorest areas of the country, is not a sustainable position. So specifically to Birmingham, there will obviously need to be the, the due process that happens when one of these notices is served and usually that involves some kind of arrangement in terms of um you know the difference in what can be raised in terms of uh, capital funding you know, the, the rules will change around that but you can't get away from the fact that this is not the first uk local authority that's been in this position and there are many more that are you know potentially in a, a similar position so it does require yes. national attention from the government yes. Okay, national attention. There have been seven, in fact, so far of these uh, 114 notices which have been issued since 2020 and more are likely, as you say. Councils are allowed to raise uh, council tax by 5% this year. Croydon was given special permission by the Chancellor to raise it by 15%. Do you expect other councils to raise taxes to that level? Would you refuse to allow local council tax to go up 15%? I think people need to be aware that, I mean, if I look at my own local authority in Tameside and what has happened in terms of you know the budgets and the relationship between national and local government and the expenditure over the last decade you know there is a situation now in, in England in particular where the responsibilities of local councils the statutory responsibilities if you like the, the bit that isn't discretionary what councils can or cannot 
fund. You know, that burden of the long term in an ageing society cannot be met purely by council tax alone. I mean, this, this requires a look at the national policy framework which supports these things, and it is an incredibly extensive problem. And the fact that we've seen such varied authorities be in this position, I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, regardless of political control, regardless of urban and, and rural mm. factors, you know, this is the position across the board. It, it requires more than just there is no easy answer to it, but it is a reflection of the national spending choices and priorities for what is now uh, 13 years. Yeah, Jonathan, can I briefly press you on that, though? I mean, if you become the next Labour government, as the polling suggests, you would end up with councils having to increase council tax. Would you allow council tax to go up by the by that sort of amount? And, you know, these are deep-seated issues for councils. We see that the problem in this position is that First of all, we, we haven't had the, the remaining fiscal events of this parliament. We don't know effectively the overall envelope to set those decisions within. And I'm afraid if I answered one question relating to you know public services, there would just be a whole range of other questions, whether that's the, the health service, education, the, the criminal justice system, the, the courts, because there are so many problems across the board in the UK right now. And obviously for, for my job, now doing business and trade in the shadow cabinet, you know, often where I have to return to is the fact that if you look at the the rate of growth in the UK since 2010, if you look what has happened to productivity for, for wages, until you address the fact that the economy is not growing in the UK as strongly as it needs to to meet the aspirations of the British people, these questions will be incredibly difficult to answer because we are simply in a position now where for many of my constituents and, and voters around the country, they look at it and say, well, look, our taxes are already high, our public services aren't very good, but at the heart of that, it is the low growth low productivity economy that we have had. That's the point that the former Bank of England policymaker Michael Saunders made to us earlier this week. He says we're in for more persistently low growth and low living standards unless public investment increases. He says it's been a political choice in the Conservative government. The Labour Party wants to make a different choice. How do you do it under the current budget rules? Well, first of all, there are parts of our plans, what we call the Green Prosperity Plan, which is about greater public investment to realise the maximum economic opportunities of net zero. And I always am keen to stress that is about leveraging in a much greater amount of private investment. It is a, a specific ambition from the party. We're in a slightly strange position, to be honest, because we've seen over the last few months, there have been obviously some announcements from the government, particularly the, the, the Tata uh, announcement around the um, the gigafactory for the automotive sector, that have involved a significant public subsidy, yet the government kind of tries to deny the fact that this has occurred. So it's not that there's a, a complete rejection of that from the government side, but the fact is, if we want to, to recognise the environment we're in, particularly since the Inflation Reduction Act in the US, there has to be a more compelling offer to make sure the kind of investments we want to see come to the UK. I would also say, though, it's not just about greater public investment, because the number one request I get from businesses in this country is, first of all, for a greater degree of stability, you know, in our industrial strategy plans and particularly having an institutional strength and independence to our new industrial strategy council is part of that. But also there are things that need to happen that aren't about greater government spending. I mean, the planning system has become a big dividing line between ourselves and the government, both for homes and for infrastructure. We've got our you know, our changes to the apprenticeship levy to give businesses more flexibility because the skills challenges and labour market challenges in the UK are very, very evident right now. Making Brexit work and how we intend to improve that trading relationship with the EU is a part of that as well. So yes, we have an ambition for a greater amount of public investment to, to increase the overall quantum of private investment in the economy. But there are changes as well that we intend that aren't just about spending money. Yeah, and Keir Starmer has talked about this and pledged, um, you know, 
two things in particular to secure the higher sustained growth in the G7 and complete, as you say, the shift to clean power by 2030. Um, the thing is, it requires the backing of business, as you say, um, business investment. What do you think, Jonathan, is the most important policy that's actually going to mobilise business to reach what are incredibly stretching goals? They're ambitious, but we should be ambitious and we should bring to this debate a recognition, yes, of the position the UK is in at present, but also some optimism for the future. And that's the balance we always try and strike. I'm tempted to say, in response to your question, you know, it doesn't sound very glamorous, but political stability is the number one thing that businesses ask any incoming government for. And they can clearly, I think, see that we will be able to offer that to a far greater degree than the incumbent government. But I, I actually think probably at the, at the heart of what is the key policy for us, it is that industrial strategy and our clear ambitions, but also how we would go about doing that. Because ultimately, stability comes not just from warm words from politicians, it comes from how you will put into place those long-term plans and give people um, confidence that they won't change overnight. And that is exactly yeah. what our plans are intended to do. No, absolutely. And industrial strategy, I suspect a lot of the business leaders that we speak to, they will be delighted to hear that phrase. And yet, industrial strategy is a huge waterfront of potential policies. You know, tell us about one or two. Well, first of all, I'd ask people to, to download and read our, our document, which we published uh, at the time of Labour Party conference last year. But essentially, that is a the most interesting bits, I think, of that policy document. First of all, how we will do that, how there will be a, an independence and strength to the plans that we put forward. We, we see the Industrial Strategy Council operating on a similar model to how, for instance, that the Committee on Climate Change or the OBR function in British public life. But our four priorities that are uh, listed in that document, first of all, that the clean power target that you've mentioned uh, is one of those. Another one is how we intend to use data for the public good. I think quite an interesting area in terms of how the states, again, not about spending money, but how can we enable that partnership with business uh, to enable them to do the kind of things that they could do in the UK. We have um, the challenge of improving the care sector in an ageing society as part of that, and the recognition there's got to be more attention for greater national resilience following the, the, the pandemic and the energy crisis, and all of our plans are related around that. But I, you know, I would say any country needs an explicit industrial strategy, because I hear time and time again that people, to be honest, don't really know what the UK is trying to do or wants to be these days. And I think the, the position the government's got to, which is now they're saying... Yes, we have had an industrial strategy, then cancelled it, then sort of brought it back. The line is now they have it, but they don't have it explicitly. Well, look, the whole point of having an industrial strategy is to explicitly communicate to business how you see that partnership and what the priorities of the government are and how you will maintain. I mean, I've seen so many areas where even if the government has done interesting things over the last 13 years, it simply hasn't had any longevity. It's changed entirely, often within a, a calendar year of being announced. And when you look at the investment timescales and frameworks and what other countries are offering, that is simply not going to cut it in the world we're in right now. We, we, we recognise that. That is the number one thing, as I say, that business has raised with us. And trying to rectify that and give them some confidence in the future is what that strategy is about. Well, speaking of that confidence, it, when we think about the the concerns around regulation is the uk getting the balance right when it comes to how regulators are operating i'm thinking about the cma and the criticism it faced over the microsoft activision deal the uk is now trying to be a regulator mm. a relatively small regulator dealing with the world's biggest companies after brexit will labor plan to strengthen those regulators well let me talk specifically first of all about the cma and competition because i i do think part of a healthy regulatory system is 
you know a healthy competition framework and that obviously isn't always um to the interests or the ease of, of incumbents in a market but i think we all recognize that the economy as a whole benefits from making sure we have that competitive framework in place and i think uh, specifically around microsoft the cma have have done the right thing in the, in the activity and the decisions that they have made your wider question about does the uk how how do we how do we get the balance at the minute between the various uh, objectives around economic growth and sound regulation that we would want to see i, I think to be honest, at the minute, no, we don't always get that right. I think there is at times a lack of a recognition of the aggregate impact of different government departments and different regulators and what they are doing. I mean, I'll give you a specific example. I think um, you know, if you look at how some of the changes around kind of recycling and, and, and environmental regulation has been handled, there's a sense from from businesses operating in the UK that you know one part of government does something. And other parts of government simply have no regard for, for how that fits into their own plans and, and how that is operating. And I think that the effectiveness of a, of a working industrial strategy is not to try and control the departments from the business department. You wouldn't want any business sector doing that, but you've got to coordinate that ambition. You've got to have a heed to your overall competitive position. And I think at the minute, there's a sense for businesses that that balance isn't right at the moment. But not so much that they want that burden fundamentally changed, but they do want to understand and appreciate that the government is willing to listen, regulators are willing to listen as to what that picture means for them and their business models. Okay, financial services in the UK is a massive export, a tax and jobs generator. At the moment, it makes up, depends who you speak to, 8% of UK economic output. The City UK puts it at 10%. Does finance um, play too big a role in the UK economy? If you guys got, as the Labour Party, 13 years in office, as the Conservatives have done... What could I expect sitting in the city of London to be the size of this industry at the end of those 13 years? Well, people may uh, know I was the shadow of city minister. Um, I think it was one of Labour's longest serving shadow of city ministers. So it's a sector I'm greatly familiar with and I have always rejected any kind of what I would call the false argument that, that maybe there's some sort of tension between the city and the financial sector and what I think some people sometimes think of or, or may call the real economy you know somehow that there's there's the manufacturing sector and making things and the city's doing something else i mean if you, if you look what do we mean by the city we're talking about pensions we're talking about the insurance sector we're talking about banking these are all services that directly relate to every part of the uk and every part of the economy there so it's of course it's a, it's a, a huge strength of the uk economy something that we value and wish to see continuing to thrive there are, of course, challenges that have come in the main uh, from Brexit, but also from competition from other places. So I don't think anyone can give an explicit, uh, you know, claim as to what the overall size of that would be. But we would want, of course, the UK to continue to be and London to be a leading financial sector and, and making the most of what we hope will be new opportunities, particularly coming from the east in terms of how. Those yes, economies are evolving and the kind of services that they yeah, would yeah. want to be. But financial services, we export more financial services out of the UK than anything else, basically. Then we forget about manufacturing. Financial services exports are are the lion's share, really, of what we do. Should that remain that way? Well, of course it should remain that way because it's a huge strength and competitive advantage of the UK. But what I'm stressing is I, I don't see any kind of tension between wanting any part of the British economy to succeed or, or if you 
want to see one part of that economy succeed than it is to the cost of anything else. And I think the the strength of any economy is making sure the policies are in place to compete on a global level as best you can across the board. And uh, you know, I think it would be a tragedy for the UK if we didn't make the most of new opportunities around the world and continue the strength of our services exports because it's something we do extremely well. You've recently acquired the trade portfolio. I'm wondering how you plan to improve trade relations with the EU. You'll have the review of the TCA coming up uh, in the lifetime of the next government and there are more checks coming to be applied to incoming goods into Britain from early next year. That's going to be something that's going to add to costs. Well, we believe we can substantially improve that relationship. We think there are areas of mutual interest uh, that we can negotiate in good faith with the EU that will see that relationship improved. I know there are some people who want us to to reopen the whole debate. Um, I would say to those people, that's not just some sort of political calculation, but I mean, look at the uncertainty and the impact of that uncertainty that came about following the referendum result on Brexit. I think we genuinely, the best thing for the UK is cracking on and improving that relationship rather than being locked in a a forever argument as to what the result of that should be. in those the top conversations priorities are rejoining Horizon. Yeah, the top priorities are the following four, which is rejoining Horizon, um, which I think uh, I cannot understand the government's delay and reluctance to proceed with that, particularly following the Windsor Agreement. It is for an SBS agreement, a veterinary agreement on agriculture and food trade between ourselves and the single market. It is 30 for the mutual um, recognition professional qualifications, again, as you said, in a services-based economy, a huge gain potentially for us there. And finally, um, not revisiting freedom of movement, of course, but a labour mobility arrangement, particularly around the creative sector, where there have been huge limitations put on, for instance, people touring in the European Union because of the agreement that was reached and the TCA as it stands. These are all genuinely ways in which we could vastly improve our trading position with the European Union and also be Mm. of mutual interest to the other side. And that's why they're such priorities for us. Okay, how worried are you about the pace of grid connection? How big a problem is it for UK PLC connection to the power grid? It's a huge issue. I mean, I I cannot stress enough how quickly in meetings this is raised, no matter what sector you're talking to. I mean, if you're talking to, for instance, hospitality and, and, you know, people who run pubs raise this, not just big, uh, you know, engineering or or manufacturing or or new renewable and nuclear energy uh, connections. I mean, this is an incredibly difficult position. And obviously, people may know that one of the one of the thorniest issues around um, the announcement around the Tata electric battery factory, you know, was about grid connections and capacity. So um, my colleague at Miliband in the shadow uh, net zero team uh, obviously is working on, on the detail of this. But when I look at the key supply side changes we intend uh, to make alongside those things to, to planning and to the apprenticeship levy and business rates, this is very much one of them. And the, the position we're in as it stands today, I, I honestly, I cannot fathom how ministers have been so slow to realise is what this will mean, because I think everyone recognises that, you know, not just in terms of the transition in energy supply, but what, what that means in, in terms of grid connections, but also for, for industry, for, for new homes, how we will need to change domestic heating. Greater degree of electrification has always had to play a major role in that. It, it comes up quite honestly in the top three issues that businesses raise. Just finally, if we can, Jonathan Reynolds, we're looking ahead towards party conference, Caesar. I'm wondering what's the big idea for the Labour Party going into this conference? Well, we believe, and if you look at the engagement from business uh, in Labour Party conference, it is um, 
an incredible degree of support and engagement that we are receiving. We obviously launched our industrial strategy last year at Labour Party Conference, and this year we've got a specific focus on some of our offer to smaller businesses, um, as particularly Small Business Day, which we are really excited about. But you know, the big message continues to be, we believe if you look at the, the policies Labour is offering across the board when it comes to the economy and to business, it is simply a far more compelling offer than anything the government have put forward. And I think for businesses in the UK and inward investors to the UK, the fact is that we are a much, you know, usually any business would be looking at 2024 and thinking, you know, will there be, there'll be an election probably, will there be a change of government? The risk premium for most businesses is a continuation of the Conservative government rather than a change to the Labour Party. And we've worked very hard at that, but obviously we need to continue to, to not be complacent, to continue that work, to work on the detail, which is so important in making these policies work. And we'll absolutely be continuing to do that. That was the Shadow Business and Trade Secretary Jonathan Reynolds speaking to Caroline Hepker and I a little bit earlier as well. Lots of detail in there about Labour's plans uh, if they are successful at the next election. Yeah, something's also going to be a problem for Labour as well as the Conservatives is the cash or lack of cash available to spend in the next couple of years. Bloomberg scooped today that says that market assumptions for interest rates are roughly a percentage point higher than they were back in March and that means there is much less money going forward. Oh, fun. That's it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe. Give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by James Walcock and Jack Ryan and our audio engineer was Mariful Hussain. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Stephen Carroll. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.